0: come this Lord's Day to continue in our study of the topic, the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In order to fulfill God's oath to Christ, promising His eternal priesthood, it was necessary that Christ have a better offering to bring unto God that He did when He offered up Himself as our sacrifice. Because Christ has obtained a better priesthood, He is the mediator of a better covenant, established upon better promises. Hebrews explains to us that a new covenant was necessary because the old covenant was faulty. The fault, of course, lies in poor sinners who cannot keep the old covenant because of the fall and their corrupt sin nature. Therefore, the blessings of the Old Covenant cannot be obtained. Therefore, God discloses His New Covenant that brings His people salvation not by our works or obedience or promise, but by God's unilateral promise to us. Hebrews goes to precise lengths to explain that this New Covenant is not like the Old Covenant which God made when Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, which covenant they promptly broke. The new covenant is very different indeed. It is all of God's promise to us and none of our promises to God. Salvation and forgiveness and sanctification are not of our works, but of God's divine power working in us. God promises new changed hearts, intimate knowledge of Him and His law, and restoration of our mutual relationship unto God. Under this new covenant, God owns us, claims us, acknowledges us as His people, and we will do likewise toward our God. This relationship and change and power are from God and not according to any creation or will of man. Neither are they brought about by any imposed church upon the people, nor by the power of the state. It is rather all the miraculous power of God working in us. The keystone, of course, is the promised forgiveness of our sins by God. He will be merciful to our unrighteousness. The curse of the broken law will be taken away. This forgiveness and mercy to our unrighteousness was, of course, executed and empowered by the sacrifice our high priest, the Lord Jesus, made for us at Calvary. His is the blood of the new covenant, shed for His people, for the remission of our sin. Christ, by His blood, removed from us the promised judgment due under the old covenant, satisfying it Himself in our place by His perfect obedience and perfect sacrifice. Paul explained that the law could never justify us because it was too weak in our flesh. Therefore, God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ executing the judgment for our sin upon the Lord Jesus on the cross so that we cannot be condemned for our sin already laid on Christ. Hebrews goes on to assert that the old covenant is done away for us in Christ. The old covenant of salvation and life by keeping the law cannot be rehabilitated, modified, improved, or re-empowered because it has been completely replaced for the believer by the new covenant. False teachers will try to claim that the Holy Ghost will help us keep the law so that in the end we are saved by law-keeping or our own good works. They heretically assert that we can indeed obtain life by keeping the law by the Spirit or by grace. They pretend as if they can bolt the Holy Spirit onto the old covenant, rehabilitate it and put it back into action as the way of salvation. But the key point is that's not the new covenant at all. The change God works in His people under the new covenant is the result of our justification, not its cause. And God has spoken. The old covenant is faulty and is done away with for God's people by Christ and replaced by the new covenant. God's promise to us is no longer do this and live. Rather, it is that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works at all. Good works are worked in us by the power of God as a consequence of His promise to us to forgive us of our sin. No wonder God's oath to Christ is such a great comfort to us and a sure consolation. Our great high priest by His obedience and sacrifice and faithful intercession for us has rescued us from the old covenant of works. The law of sin and death has been replaced by the new covenant, which has the far better promises of God. Justification, forgiveness of our sin, and promised sanctification as we are conformed to the image of Christ. So this Lord's Day, we speak on the topic, we have a better tabernacle, a better tabernacle. Now, where is the priest's work done? under the old covenant. Where is the priest's work done? It was in the tabernacle where priests made reconciliation for the people, if you recall. We have a better priest in Christ mediating a better covenant based on better promises. Now we must have a better tabernacle wherein Christ's work can be accomplished. We know that there must be a better tabernacle because God told Moses to make the earthly tabernacle according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. So there is a tabernacle which the earthly tabernacle is a mere picture of, a physical copy of, a representation of that can never be complete. Remember all the types and shadows and images of the Old Testament of spiritual things can never be complete. They can never be better than or equal to in quality the thing which they represent. They merely are there to point us to in pictorial form that which is to come, which is far better. Now in Hebrews chapter 9 at verse 1, we read the following Then verily the first covenant, that is the old covenant, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So you see, the writer of Hebrews is going to carry on with his extended argument and say that because Christ is a better priest, because He has a better covenant that He mediates, that He's a surety for, that has better promises, therefore there must be a comparison made between the tabernacle under the old covenant and its services and the tabernacle which is heavenly where Christ serves. Because Christ was not qualified to serve in the Old Testament tabernacle because He was not of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. So here the writer reminds us that there were ordinances and services and a worldly or earthly tabernacle. And then he describes in verse 2 the outer sanctuary. The tabernacle was made, the first wherein was the candlestick, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. If you all remember, there was an outer court surrounded by a curtain entered into by a colorful veil. And inside that outer court was the brazen altar where the sacrifice was slain. There was a laver where the priest washed himself ceremonially. Then there was the tabernacle proper, and it had a curtain. And through that curtain, the people didn't proceed, only the priests, perhaps the Levites. And inside of that was the table of showbread and the golden candlesticks. There was also a golden altar there placed in front of the inner veil, which was to separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary. And in the inner veil, the priest only went through that veil one time. Only the high priest, not the lower priests, not the Levites, none of the people for sure. So here he describes in verse 2 the outer tabernacle, candlestick, the table, the showbread. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. We used to call it the holy of holies. But it is that place, that small place, enclosed in curtains and boards. In the original tabernacle, of course, it was a tent-like structure. And to enter into that inner tabernacle, that inner sanctuary, the holiest of holies, was a veil placed. Why? Because the glory of God inhabited that inner tabernacle, that inner sanctuary, that holiest place. And no man could look upon that glory except he die. In order to go into that veil and into the presence of the glory of God, there had to be a cloud of incense raised in order to obscure the glory. So I suppose that the priests that went in there were sort of inhibited by the inability to really see. But the layout was very simple. Right in front of them as they entered the veil, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to describe that in verse 4, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there's this golden box that had a beat-out golden top called the mercy seat. And over it were these two cherubim arching their wings over the mercy seat. And in that center is where the glory of God inhabited for the people of Israel. The whole point of the incense, as I said, was to obscure the glory of God. And the priests entered the Holy of Holies through that veil And they sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice for the people taken at the altar outside upon that mercy seat where mercy for sins was found and God's justice was appeased or satisfied. That was the point of the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And the reason it's called the mercy seat, obviously, is because that's where the priest sought God's mercy for the sin of the people to make an atonement for them, to satisfy God's wrath by the blood of the sacrifice for the people's sin, to make a propitiation by the blood of the sacrifice sprinkled upon the mercy seat. So here is the place that the priest presents the blood of atonement at the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the glory of God behind that thick veil. The place where the sacrifice for sin is presented to God to make atonement for the sin of the people is at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim where the glory of God rests and His wrath is propitiated and appeased at that place. But all this is just a symbol, a picture, a type of the true tabernacle, which is what the author's point will soon be made clear at verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, that is the outer tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, that inner tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the high priest went alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. So how important this process was to the Jewish people. It was the way by which they had been told that God's wrath was taken away for their sin. How can we exist without the mercy seat and the ark, they must have thought, especially in bad times when the ark had been carried off by the Philistines, you remember? And there was no ark of the covenant in Israel at that time. And it had been stored away at a country farmer's house because some of the men had been killed when they touched the ark against God's commandment. It was not to be touched by the flesh of man. And then it seems as if historically that the Ark of the Covenant may not ever have been recovered when the people came back from the captivity of Babylon. Although that point is not explicitly made in Scripture. But at some point it disappeared. At the latest, of course, would be 70 A.D. when all of Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. And the Ark of the Covenant, as far as we know, was never seen again but this is important to the jewish people it's the center of their whole relationship with god that they must have a mercy seat they must have a priest to make an offering of blood to take away god's wrath for their sin how can we exist without a mercy seat and an ark and a priest where will the work of the priest be done for us But we know it was all taken away in 70 A.D., wasn't it? And since then, there's been no sacrifice for the Jewish people. No mercy seat. And therefore, according to the old covenant, there's been no propitiation for their sin. And the ones who take their faith seriously are greatly grieved by that. And there's all kind of machinations about whether we should rebuild the temple and restore the temple sacrifice. But where will they obtain a mercy seat? And how will they expect the glory of God to reside there anymore? The writer of Hebrews says that the fact that the high priest only went in once a year by himself without any accompaniment and had to take blood to offer for the sin, In verse 8, the writer of Hebrews draws this conclusion, the Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. The writer of Hebrews is pointing out this major fault with the old covenant and with the old tabernacle and with the old priesthood that it could never really take away the sin of the people because... If it could, why would we have to take blood in there before we go into the presence of God? Where's the peace with God? There's still no peace with God. There's still wrath from God. There's still judgment. There's still fiery judgment from God. Why should only the priests go? Why can't all of the Lord's people, if there's peace with God, go into the presence of God? Doesn't that indicate, and it does, that the people are still unclean in their sin. That all of this picture and type and shadow doesn't take away sin. It merely points the people to that time when the Messiah would come and He would do away with their sin. And the promise of the new covenant would be fulfilled that God would not remember their sins against them anymore. He would be merciful in their Unrighteousness. So the flaw is that only once a year and only with blood means that there is still in the old tabernacle and the rules for its access a reminder of our abiding sin and the priests' utter limitation in access thereto and into making a full and complete satisfaction for our sin before God with their animal sacrifices. The imperfection of the sacrifice is being offered. Only the priests could go in, but not God's people. Then at verse 9 we read this, Which were a figure. All of that tabernacle and offering and going behind the veil and sprinkling of the blood. They were a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers, washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. All of those things could never cleanse the guilty conscience or wash away its stain, as the hymn writer puts it. None of the sacrifices, none of the ordinances, none of the rituals, They could still not really make man right before God, but they were outward signs. They were carnal signs, if you will, of the means which would be disclosed in the Lord Jesus as our great High Priest. The types and earthly shadows and symbols were incomplete and only pointed to the perfect that was to come in Christ our High Priest. But then notice in verse 11, the better tabernacle of Christ. But Christ, being common high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. That is, of the building of physical things which we understand and which the tabernacle was an exemplar of Christ is coming a better priest, good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So Christ comes and He performs His work for His people in a more perfect and greater tabernacle, one that was not built by man. You see, Christ does not perform His work as our high priest in a carnal earthly tabernacle, that is, in a building that we build. This is why we say that the church building is not the church. Whether it be a humble dirt-floored hut or it be the greatest cathedral known to man, these are not the places where the offering for sin is presented to God. These are not the places where Christ carries out His priestly work in the presence of God, as the priests in those days carried out their priestly work once a year in the presence of the glory of God. And this is one of the great blasphemies of the Mass and of any so-called Christian system in which we pretend that an earthly high priest, no matter what we name him, not Christ, can offer up in a sufficiently sanctified location like a cathedral and on a special sanctified so-called altar or table plated in gold and topped with crucifixes and candles that any such person doing any such service in any such earthly tabernacle can be thought to be presenting a propitiatory sacrifice to God. But that's what they claim the Mass is. A propitiatory sacrifice that takes away sin. But here we see that Hebrews teaches us that Christ is a high priest of good things to come. That means better things than what the Aaronic priesthood symbolized or performed. And it is by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Not of this building. That's where he does his work as the high priest. If you notice in Hebrews that Hebrews has already made brief mention of this better tabernacle where the work of the priest would take place. For example, in Hebrews 6, we read this already. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. Remember, these are the promises that God made to us to save us and the oath that God made to Christ to make Him a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. The anchor that we have is set in Jesus Christ and He has entered into the veil in glory. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here the writer of Hebrews is reminding his readers that we have a sure hope, that we have an anchor of the soul for that hope. It's sure and steadfast. The anchor has entered into the veil of the better tabernacle. Entered into the veil that is in the person of Jesus Christ who is our High Priest. You see, our hope is not anchored down at the church house or in the cathedral or at some table, high table, set up in a glorious fashion or in the tabernacle of the congregation as they call that little box that they put the consecrated bread into. That's not where our anchor rests. Our anchor rests in the Lord Jesus who has entered where? Into the holiest place in glory, behind the veil. You see, He's behind the veil forever for us. Not like the old ironic priests who could only peep back there and run back there and then run back out again one time a year with the blood of animal sacrifices and so forth. And then in Hebrews 8, verse 1, we have already read this. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum we have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. That's where the heavenly tabernacle is. That's right there next to the throne of God with all the glory and majesty that surrounds it. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. This is where our high priest resides. And you see, he doesn't have to run back out because of the danger or the fear or the wrath of God. He's seated there. You remember the priests in the Old Testament, they couldn't have a chair in the Holy of Holies or even in the outer sanctuary. They had to always be standing and walking and moving. But our Lord Jesus is sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He is the ministry of the true sanctuary, the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. And then finally, a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 9, we read this, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the true tabernacle is that place in which we find the presence of God and Jesus Christ entered into that place forever for us. Not having to leave, not having to flee the scene for fear of God's wrath, but permanently there, you see, representing us unto the throne of God. Representing us Making intercession for us. Now God's people can now freely enter into the holiest where once the Aaronic priests only entered once a year. And this is the marvelous thing. You see, when all the people were barred from the tabernacle, only the priests could go, only the high priest once a year. But what does it say in Hebrews 10 at verse 20? Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Why are we bold? Because the blood of Christ has forever perfected them who are sanctified and God has forgiven our sins and remembers our iniquities against us no more. So therefore, we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. So you see, under the new covenant, we get to go into the new tabernacle right there with Christ, seated at the right hand of the glory of God. We're not barred from the holiest of holies like the Israelites were and even like the priests were and even like the high priest was except for once a year. No, by the blood of Jesus that cleansed us from all unrighteousness and forever perfected us, we have boldness to enter right into that place where men had always been excluded before. And we do it because we have our high priest there. He's there. And we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We trust in the work of Christ that it has truly cleansed us and saved us and reconciled us to God and delivered us from all of our sin and cleansed us from all unrighteousness so we can go, you see, into the holiest place. Why, even the priests in the Old Testament time had no such confidence in the forgiveness of their sin else they wouldn't have had to put up the cloud of incense, would they? And they wouldn't have been fearful to see the glory of God or to abide in His presence. And while they made propitiation and satisfaction for the people on the mercy seat, it was all a picture of that which was to fulfill the sign, the shadow, the symbol one day in our Lord Jesus. So now God's people freely entered into the holiest where once the Aaronic priests only entered once a year. We enter that holiest place in glory by way of the veil that kept men out under the Old Testament. You remember, there was a veil. In fact, there was a series of veils, but the inner veil was the do not cross line for sure. They were kept out by the veil. But Now in Hebrews 10, the writer says that we enter through the veil, that is to say his flesh, by means of the veil, via the veil. And people struggle to articulate the beauty of what this means. It refers to the fact that the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ sacrificed, is the means by and through which we enter into the presence of the Holy God without fear. The veil is the body of the Lord Jesus sacrificed for us at Calvary. That's what we enter through. We enter through that torn body, that shed blood of the Lord Jesus. It is the entrance way, you see, not that bars us from the presence of God, but that welcomes us. If we've trusted in Jesus, it welcomes us into the presence of God in all the glory and brightness and splendor. Why? Because our sins have been taken away in the body and the blood of Jesus. It is in the body of Jesus our sacrifice whereby we enter in to the presence of our holy God. We are no longer kept out by curtains and smoke like as in the time when the true way had not yet been provided in Jesus Christ. But we are welcomed by the body of Jesus, through the body of Jesus and His blood, to enter in unto our God without stain or fear. What a comfort God has given to us by Jesus Christ for the liberty to go where poor lost men were always barred from going. This is a great comfort to us that we can go boldly into the presence of God and not fear with God's righteousness on our person and offerings to bring. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view, as the songwriter put it. You see, we have a better tabernacle that welcomes us by Christ's sacrifice and has cleansed us. And all of this was interestingly foreshadowed at Christ's death, wasn't it? We read this morning in Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter, as Christ hung on the cross in agony and shame for our crimes. Verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. So here is that act that took place when the body of Christ was sacrificed for the sins of his people. And at that point where He died, where the sacrifice died, the veil was rent, you see, from top to bottom. See, there was no longer any use for the Old Testament, Old Covenant, Old Tabernacle types and shadows. It is as if to say that the work done here in pictorial form is finished because the work done on Calvary's tree has superseded it and has fulfilled the sacrifice that was pictured by the animal offerings. And the way into the holy place has been opened in the broken body and shed blood of the sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, who would be our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it took Hebrews to explain it all, you see. There is a better tabernacle from which God's people are not kept out, but we enter through the sacrifice, the sacrificial body of Jesus who is always inside the holiest place, making intercession for us. Do you see the parallel, which perhaps we should stress one more time, that into the old covenant, in the old tabernacle, there were the types and shadows of the sacrifice that Christ would make one day. And the blood was taken into the presence of God and sprinkled on the mercy seat to picture the propitiation which Christ's sacrifice would make. And you see the sacrificial blood was presented to God as a propitiation inside the Holy of Holies. And true enough, the Lord Jesus has presented the sacrificial blood of His offering for sin inside the heavenly tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. But He only does it once. And when He does it, He sits down there and makes intercession for us. Why? Because His sacrificial blood brings a true propitiation for the sin of His people, not like the types and shadows of the animal sacrifices that could never take away sin. So Christ presents His offering for our sin in the heavenly tabernacle, the better tabernacle, wherein He presented His blood atonement for the sin of His people. He's always inside the holiest place making intercession for us and beckoning us to come in there into His presence because our sins have been totally taken away. What a comfort it is for God's people for that symbol of sin and rejection and restlessness to be ripped down. And by the blood of Jesus, we come boldly unto God where once in the earthly tabernacle we were barred from doing so. And it reminded me of the words of a precious hymn written by Elizabeth Dark, Inside the veil, through thy precious body broken, inside the veil, Oh, what words to sinners spoken inside the veil, precious as the blood that bought us, perfect as the love that sought us, holy as the Lamb that brought us inside the veil. Lamb of God, through Thee we enter inside the veil. Cleansed by Thee we boldly venture inside the veil. Not a stain, a new creation, Ours is such a full salvation. Lo, we bow in adoration inside the veil. Soon, thy saints, shall all be gathered inside the veil. All at home no more be scattered inside the veil. Not from thee our hearts shall sever. We shall see thee, grieve thee never. Praise the Lamb shall sound forever inside the veil. And so at the Lord's table, the Lord Jesus left us this picture of the work that He did on the cross whereby His body was broken and His blood poured out to make a propitiation for our sin, to set us at liberty before God, to reconcile us, to bring us to be at peace with God even though we were sinners. And He presents that offering for us inside the veil of the heavenly tabernacle where He resides making intercession for us into which we are invited to come in because the sacrifice He did for us has done the job of our redemption and of our justification, praise God. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for how it pictures for us that mighty work of redemption which Christ wrought for us as He hung on the tree in shame and agony and woe. Let's give thanks for the bread first. O God, our Father, we rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ. We rejoice in the fact that He laid down His life for His people. We rejoice in the fact that there's a better tabernacle that our high priest takes the better sacrifice And presents it before the mercy seat of God in glory. And you have accepted it for Jesus' sake and by the evidence that you raised him from the dead, the prisoner being released because the debt was completely satisfied. We thank you for this better tabernacle and for the work of Christ in it for us, and that we are invited inside as well by the blood of Jesus. Help us to be bold to enter and to cry out Your glory, Your praise, and our petitions for Your help, and to know that You hear us, and to know that You receive us, and that You will not cast us out from that heavenly tabernacle where the Lord Jesus has made a way into it for us by His body, by His torn body through which we enter into Your presence. And we thank You that He left us this feast. Help us to partake of it and to know what it means to understand what it signifies and to rejoice in it for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus The blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the forgiveness of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach The Lord's death until He comes. Let's sing number 65 in the black book. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes His sorrows, heals His wounds, and drives away His fear. Let's stand as we sing number 65.